Welcome back to the Health Mastery Show. Today I have on with a multiple time guest, Dr. Eric Helms. And for good reason, Eric holds a PhD in nutritional sciences. He is a coach at 3D Muscle Journey, a research fellow at AUT in New Zealand, and among, amongst many other accolades. In today's episode, we dive into the topics of motivation, intrinsic, extrinsic. How do we know if we're doing things for the right reasons and are going to actually add to our lives and make it more enriched and fulfilling versus actually detracting from our lives? This is a topic of conversation that has really played on my mind lately and I've learned a lot today from Eric. So hopefully you enjoy this episode and you take something away from it. If you do find it enjoyable and you do uh, like the like the podcast episode please do share it on your social media platforms and leave a review because it's really going to help with the ranking and the algorithm but without further ado let's get into this episode with dr eric helms eric it is always great to talk to you uh, one of the favorite guests that i've ever spoken to and in the future we'll speak to again <laughs> um, yeah, i i know so nice. people always say that you're the great podcast but i but honestly i i truly uh, have admired your work and and you as a person since <clears throat> I don't know since I found Quelly on the forums where I first learned about uh, I first learned that I could eat some crisps or potato chips as you call them and uh, by Timberwolf I don't know if you know him he's a cane sunbat um mm. he was like the, the uh, that's where I learned I F I I F O M from and uh, subsequently met him then in 2011 when I was 19 in Toronto in the gym just bumped into him but um, but yeah, that's where I found you first. I, I only knew you by your bodybuilding.com name. Forums didn't even exist anymore. People, I, I tried to go back over old forums because I, I really loved reading them for some reason. And um, it's not the same. YouTube videos aren't the same. And uh, and yeah, I, I really love to troll through all of those. Like I'd go through old old logs that like I don't know how long how old they were when I was reading them, but like definitely a few years old. And just reading yours, Alberto, um, Father Flex. Definitely, yeah jeff as well which i know is like i've, I've subsequently learned it was his name backwards um scrub lane norton yeah lane norton and then there's a few others that were like involved as well um, straight flexed think, was lane norton father flex, flex yeah. was alberto yeah. Nunez. strebla was jeff and yeah. i was quelly yes sir yeah i'm sure you read a lot of the forums as well um that's how i learned a lot of my nutritional knowledge and I, I kind of realized upon reflection that i was just parroting the same as what other people do but they just fell into they just followed the wrong people right when i was like mm -hmm. 17 i just managed to follow the right people <laughs> and i would read through i remember i read through every single muscular development forum post that lane norton had put and that was like thousands of pages because he had questions and like people asking about like does insulin matter or like and that's how i got in interested and it's so mm -hmm. inefficient when i think about it now but uh it was, it was kind of I don't know that it was, man. Like, I think no. there's there's something to be said for uh, how passionate we were at that time and the fact that we had people like Lane Norton and others who would just freely give their time in a Q&A thread and just talk, talk to all these people. And it wasn't just like yes and no answers. A lot of the times they were like going back and forth and getting argued with and people would drop at PubMed links. Mm. There was um, a lot of... I, I, was gonna, I was gonna say healthy debate. It wasn't always healthy because it's still, you know, it's really not that different from what we see on like Twitter these days. But there was a lot of debate, and I learned kind of how to critically think and reason through a lot of that as well. Um, yeah, I think my first contest prep log on there was through 2006 to 2007, 
And uh, yeah, those are those are very formative years, and I think in a lot of people's thinking. And um, nah, dude, I 100% remember. I remember so Kane Sunbat. Um, he was a controlled labs athlete, and so was mm, I, I which was oh, right. back in the day. So like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I remember. I remember all of it, and it was uh, it was good times. And I was doing the same thing. I was I was learning and, and listening and and bugging people. I think Alan Aragon was the sports nutrition forum moderator. I'd harass him about what exactly should the amount of grams per kg of carbohydrate be after I finish my workouts. So yeah, yeah. it's right there with you. I, I do. And the last point on this is I do remember that Jay Cutler replied to me once and I was like, Holy shit. Jay Cutler replied to me. And now with like Instagram and like TikTok and it's like a lot more common or like it would mm. be as like, it's like amazing that like uh, Chris Bumstead like liked my comment or whatever it would be. But like at the time I could not believe that like Jay Cutler replied probably some like complete bro signs. It was like, you know, you got to do like nine sets (laughs) of chest or something like that. Something like that was like, you know, but that was, that was pretty cool back in the day, but yeah, but having gone through all that and learning, like learning a lot of the wrong stuff, but, but then like over time developing that and honing that and sharpening my sword, I don't know. I've talked to you about like I was doing my master's previously, which I'd finished, and then like I wanted to do a PhD, and like it kind of I've kind of nearly come to the end of the journey because just this earlier this week I got accepted into a doctor program, which I'm probably going to start this, this semester or whatever this fall. So like, never thought that like I would start just reading, you know, bodybuilding.com forum logs, and you know, just fo- trying to figure out like what food to eat or you know which one of the different types of proteins that I bought should I take throughout the day, um, and now kind of come come to come to like you know the up up to the level of at least education where you guys have have started. So yeah, yeah, I just wanted to. I wasn't just saying that you were like yeah, someone that I really talked to. That it's just one of those things that people say to start a podcast. It was like really genuine. So. Would have loved to be up on the stage with you this year. Um, I know we competed last time and I really, really, really wanted to compete, but I kind of figured out that I wanted the wanted the prize of, of getting up on stage, but not the fight. So I know the stage will always be there. So hopefully next year or the year after, whatever, then we can we can battle it out again. But I'll definitely be following that journey and uh, hope you uh, hope you enjoy the the rest of the prep. Well, dude, I appreciate that. First, just taking the time to genuinely express that. And I, it, it means a lot to me, you know, because I put a lot of time and effort in trying to give back to this community that I feel I benefited from. And hearing from someone like yourself, who is the following that same path and, uh, and trying to contribute and putting out information and it's going from, you know, learning to, to more learnings to realizing, oh, that never really stops and taking it forward means, it means a ton. So thank you. And I had, a, I had a blast in 2019 with you on stage and um, really good self-awareness to realize the, uh, the, the reason behind why you were prepping was not the, for the, for the journey, if you will, hashtag 3DMJ. Um, and, uh, and I think it will have a good conversation about, you know, what that means and really what's at the root of that and um, how do we tick inside of these, you know, brains of ours as humans. And how does that relate mm. to bodybuilding? Yeah. So I know we, we just chatted briefly before we hit the record button, but we, yeah, we I essentially wanted to talk to you about that. Like what, you know, why do we do the things that we do and are they the right mm. things at the time 
or, or do we just simply do things because we're, you know, because we feel like we should do them in that moment? So, like, mm. you know, I know that I often have introspection or, or self-reflection. I can't, I don't know about other people that I have metacognition or thinking about their own thoughts. Probably do, right? Because they're also humans. But w- what if we start out with just like, what is intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation? What does that even mean? Yeah, let's let's start even back. Like, what is motivation? I think um, in the fitness space, you think of the word motivation and you think of like a cheerleader. You think of like a group ex-instructor. You think of, I'm going to, put on that that speech from rocky five or whatever one you like and that gets me hyped before i go to the gym or i'm going to watch a video of my favorite lifter and it's going to get me hyped and go to the gym and i think that's um that's our perspective of motivation it's like this thing but when we actually think about the word itself like what is our motive to do what we're doing right and i think that's that's probably the framing we should have not i'm a motivated person or you'll sometimes hear and i've even said this early in my career like i don't need motivation i'm disciplined or something like that like or or you know commitment is like the the big brother of motivation like because i think when we think of motivation we think of something that's fleeting we think of something that you need like you have to get a trainer to motivate you and then like we the the truly committed bodybuilders well, they wouldn't need that shit you know and in some ways that's a complete misunderstanding of what motivation is. But in other ways, there is some truth to it in so much as we have a motive that means that we're going to be connected to this thing. So what is that thing inside of us that uh, drives us to do what we do? And for those of us who stick with it long term and continue to get benefits and enjoyment out of it. And I think instead of framing it as, you know, extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation, which we will, we, I will talk about and we'll, we'll get to as being something external to you or something inside of you, I think it might be useful to think of motivation uh, being what is cultivated or what occurs when you create the right environment and you meet a human's needs. So um, this is just the framing I'm proposing. We don't have to go this route, but there is, of course, you know, data that suggests this is the case. So uh, self-determination theory, which I know you're familiar with, Adam, um, we have, it posits that there are kind of uh, among the, the various needs that we all have, three pretty important ones uh, that when they're satisfied, it leads to intrinsic motivation. So that's autonomy, competence, and relatedness. Those are the kind of the three pillars of SDT or self-determination theory. And to put those into layman's terms, autonomy is essentially feeling like you're the one in charge of your own life path or in relation to sport, your own sporting career goals. Um, Relatedness is feeling like you are understood and that there is uh, potentially a community that relates to you and that you can relate to uh, in pursuit of whatever we're talking about. Uh, And then competence is not necessarily being at the highest level or being graded, but the ability to feel like you can improve, right? So you can imagine scenarios where any one of those is lacking and it's like, I don't want to keep doing that. Like I have the choice to compete in my sport. Everyone else around me is uh, very supportive, but I never feel like I can improve or get better. Like I, maybe I need to choose something else, right? Um, or you could think of the example of uh, Andre Agassi, who I might be dating myself a little bit here. People not, might not be aware, but huge tennis star, one of the best players who ever played the game throughout the 80s and 90s. But he had a father who completely controlled his life uh, and made him like forced him to play tennis 
And he hated tennis, but he kept playing it because he was good. So he had no autonomy, but he had the competence. And he was rebelling constantly throughout his career, like dressing differently and being outspoken and being very against the prim and proper way that you saw tennis, especially in its earlier days. Um, and the press would have issues with him, et cetera. And, you know, if I think if, if he hadn't been so good, he probably would have quit early on. And if he was allowed to quit, you know, so it's, it's, it's kind of one of those examples where if you didn't have Andre Agassi's genetics, if you're one of the other, you know, 9 million out of, out of 901 million people, you probably would have bounced as soon as you moved, moved out of the house. Right. So, I mean, there's, there's many, many examples that you, you can get here, but when you have all of those uh, needs met, the motivation you tend to have will be more intrinsic. And intrinsic just means that it is something inside of you, that it is something that uh, you have a, an internal guiding focus on. And I think sometimes the mistake people make when they think about intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation when they're talking about it is that they feel like as an outsider, they can put it in one of two buckets. So, for example, someone who is highly competitive and wants to win their pro card or a world title or win a show, that from an outsider might look like, okay, that's extrinsic motivation. But it might not be, or it might be tied into something. What that represents and what the meaning behind why the person is pursuing that title or that that, that pro card or, or that, that placing is really what's going to dictate whether it's an intrinsic or an extrinsic factor. Um, now to kind of go back to that whole idea of cultivating things. So we have, if let's say you're not fully fulfilled from a self-determination theory perspective, right? That typically leads to a motivation, which is the lack of motivation to do something. I don't have a motive to do it. Why would I do it? Cause I don't have my psychological needs fulfilled or as almost like a band-aid, extrinsic factors to help me do this thing that I want to do, right? So we'll take the example of the athlete who started to fall out of love with their sport, right? But they're a professional athlete. You go, well, I got to feed my family. So I'm, you know, I do this for the check, right? And you could ask them, you know, so what, what's, what's your intrinsic motivation for doing this for the money? Like, I don't, I don't even know what you mean, bro. Like, I, I have a mortgage, I have kids, and I'm very good at football. So I'm playing football. You know, um, that's very different than someone who has all their needs met and is appreciative and, and grateful for the fact that they're getting paid. And, and Hey, you know, like, like I love to play the sport and I have all these other things in place, but I'm also getting paid, you know? So I think you can have someone who's getting paid winning championships, wants to win championships, who is enriched with internal motivation or intrinsic motivation and someone who is not. So it's very difficult to tell as an outsider from outside their own head, what are the dominant factors and, you know, what exactly is going on there, if you will. So I think it's probably most useful to look at it from that perspective of look, when your psychological needs are met in relation to the thing you're doing, you're probably going to have more intrinsic motivation. But if they're not, you're going to rely on extrinsic motivation to kind of get you through for as long as you can. And a lot of people either find themselves in burnout or quit, or they just don't have a reason to wake up every morning and do the hard thing. So what would be the problem then with something that is extrinsically motivated, right? Cause we, we often feel like we just want to do something right. I want, I want to 
like an example that would make sense to a lot of people here would be lose weight, right? Because for a job, right, you know, you mm-hmm. got to put food on the table. So you, a lot of people do jobs that they hate, but they're doing it because they need the money. Um, but but then I guess you could say, well, I need the money because I'm intrinsically motivated to support my family. Or like, I don't know if I'm missing a link here, but okay, I'm extrinsically motivated to get money, but the money is serving as an intrinsic motivator because I want to provide. I don't know what would your thoughts be on that. Yeah, so I think I think it's 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 just important to to recognize that there's nothing wrong with extrinsic motivation per se. It's just that if it is there without any intrinsic motivation, that typically leads to less sense of gratification and potentially even poor performance. There are some correlations there in the data. So you have like low quality to relatively high quality extrinsic motivation. It depends on like how internalized it is. How much do you have a story around it and how much Mm -hmm. does it mean to you? You know, like, so you can have the extrinsic motivating factor of I want to win a title, but you have a lot of meaning behind it. They have an internalized reason for why you're trying to pursue it. It's not just to fulfill, you know, it's not to gain approval from your peers. It's not just to, um, you know, to, to get a higher check or something like that or to avoid a sense of, of guilt or something like that. Like if you had uh, an internalized goal of achieving, <clears throat> excuse me, of getting a, a world championship title, because to you that says, oh, I'm fulfilling my full potential. That's like nearly intrinsic motivation. It's an external thing. It's an extrinsic motivating factor. Right. Um, and you know, that might like the potential problem with that, even a highly internalized ex- extrinsic motivator like that is if that athlete finds out that they're never going to win a title, then they're in a crossroads. They either go, okay, I'm going to use that same example. I, you know, I, I believe that my full potential is to win a world title. So therefore what the world title represents for me is fulfilling my potential. So if they don't win a world title, they're at a crossroads. They need either need to decide, yep, I've failed. I haven't fulfilled my full potential. Or maybe that wasn't the best representative of that. You know, some freak came out of the woodworks does that really change my own potential? So it creates a crossroads where they can, you know, either double down on that and suffer the the emotional consequences and, you know, maybe get some acceptance and be fine afterwards or reevaluate that, um, that, that construct in their mind of, of what that meant. Um, so that is the kind of the, the, the risk of extrinsic motivation. Another risk of extrinsic motivation is that when you focus on rewards, sometimes they can actually supplant your initial reason for doing it. You know, you mentioned some people just want to, want to do things. Sometimes we just want to do things, but we don't necessarily know why. But if we take some time to introspect, we can realize they probably came, if they kind of came organically from somewhere, right? Um, and that could be social pressure to look better. Or it could be, man, I love this and I just want to, pursue it more, you know, and that would be something a little more intrinsic versus the former example of being extrinsic. Um, but sometimes it can be a mixture, you know, um, like if you start to reward people for something that they used to do for extrinsic motivate, intrinsic motivators, um, that reward can sometimes shift them towards being more extrinsic. So I think it's basically important to not forget like where you came from, if you will, it's kind of something that people just say, like, don't forget why you started lifting or why you started doing this or, or, or what you loved about it. Um, and that's not to say it can't go the other way. Sometimes people can 
get into fitness for relatively um, like unhealthy reasons. Like, oh, I, I, I have an eating disorder that comes from a body image issue that came from societal pressure. And I got into the gym and I actually, you know, made myself less healthy. You know, I kind of acted out this exercise obsession and I got diagnosed with anorexia. But then I went to therapy and I reframed things. I realized I didn't want to 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 have those those pressures on me. I found different senses of self-worth. And then I realized I really loved, uh, you know, pushing myself in the gym and now I compete in powerlifting. Like I've heard that exact story before. And now the person is heavily intrinsically motivated towards, you know, pushing themselves further and seeing what they can accomplish. And they feel a sense of empowerment from lifting and they're no longer focused on it, but they would have never gotten there if they hadn't started lifting weights to, uh, to look better or whatever. And that's not to say you can't have a negative relationship with powerlifting or a positive relationship with your physique, but essentially, um, it really does come down to what is the story internally around these things. Um, and I, I think essentially like there is not a way to bucket some of these things from as an outsider to say like, Oh, like, Oh, he's chasing the title. That's, that's purely extrinsic. Mm. Like you don't know how, how internalized that is or what it means to them or what it represents or where it is in their priorities. It might be that like they're a highly competitive person who wants to win a pro card. But the most important thing to them is, you know, I want to prove to myself that I can push myself as far as I can. And, uh, you know, this is linked to my identity of I'm someone who pushes forward through adversity and makes the best of, the, of a bodybuilding season because that says something about who I am. You know, and, oh, well, hard luck. I didn't get the, the, the title even though I wanted it pretty bad. That doesn't change that, that, that underlying uh, intrinsic uh, motivating factor or my self-identity. It just made me frustrated, you know? So I think there is a lot of uh, complexity there that can be misunderstood if if we look at it in a little too black and white of terms. Yeah. I, one one really good uh, simile, or I don't know if you call it a simile, is it? But um analogy would be mm. um, someone mentioned to me, like, motivation is kind of like quality of protein. You can have... Yeah. Kind of more base quality of protein. You can have like a poor, I don't even know which ones are the poor plant base. What would be like a potato? I don't know. Maybe a potato is a good one. I'm not sure. You, I don't wheat, know. They're, they're, right, they're, they're all looking better these days in the research. Yeah. It's hard to say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wheat, wheat powder protein. I don't know if that even exists, but versus like, you know, whey protein isolate. And yeah. but you can also have, a, but my addition would be you can also have mixed, right? Like you can have, sure. you can have multiple motivating intrinsic and extrinsic like you said like a, a job that you love but you also get paid for it um and i did read a story before it's in a it was in a book called the art of thinking clearly clearly mm. and uh ironically i couldn't say that word and um <laughs> they there was a, a small town in switzerland where like they were needed to dump this radioactive waste and the villagers were like, you know, they were doing it for the, the greater good and they were they were allowing it to be whatever, put under the ground or I don't really know exactly how they, they get rid of, of refuse that's, that is uh, nuclear, but they were allowing it to be placed in their village at some somewhere. But then they started to offer some money or financial incentives and the, mm. the number of people who are actually in favor then actually dropped as a result of the financial incentive because... Wow they were not 
the financial incentive wasn't sufficient enough. So if the external motivator is not sufficient enough, the intrinsic motivation will dip, at least in this example. And this is the way I've also kind of thought about it as well, as if your friend asks you to a moving moving house or apartment, we give me a hand to move these stuff. You'd be like, all right, my friend. And he said, I'll give you $10 to do it. You'd be like, well, you can piss off, you know, um, because now you're doing it for an extrinsic, but it's not high enough. So how do people like, yeah, we can reflect on these things and think about maybe other people or if we really think about it, but how do we make sure that our goals are not overly um, extrinsically motivated so that one, we don't feel feel burnout or we don't lose motivation or we, we do feel like we're doing it for the right reasons, right? And I guess one of them that would make sense to talk about in this situation would be like improving body composition. Yeah. I think um, I think a lot of it is, is is understanding that your motivations will change over time. Um, that you will have, I think like the, I like to use the term like relationship with my sport, you know, because it makes me think of how relationships with people shift over time. You will get into conflict. Um, you will have periods where things are awesome. You know, like I remember that summer we spent together, yada, yada. And as you both grow as people, um, your relationship should grow as well. Um, and sometimes the natural and healthy end to a relationship is an end to the relationship. But other times, you know, it's, it's not like, you know, for a marriage, for example, ideally, <laughs> you know, what, what you're doing is you're committing to finding a way to make this relationship beneficial for both parties for the long haul, right? And if you found an activity that something about it tells you, you know, yeah, I do want to stick with this long term or at least right now, then I think you need to approach that relationship the same way. And that means kind of reevaluating every once in a while, you know, taking the opportunity to reflect, like you were saying, on maybe a seasonal basis or something like that, as to why am I doing this? What am I getting out of it? Um, what aspects have I liked previously that maybe I don't like now and why? And just figuring out what it all means to you. So for, you know, body composition related goals, there are a lot of kind of to put it in more practical terms. There are some, you know, like red flags that I think of when I'm a coach, uh, when people come to me. The first is whether they frame it in terms of an approach or an avoidance related goal. So an approach or an avoidance related goal is what it sounds like. Um, when someone is like, you might have two people who want to change their body composition to the same degree from the same starting place. And one person might be like, I'm really excited to see, you know, what I can push myself towards. And I've got this idea of this, like, you know, kind of sculpture that I want to make. And I, I'm really looking forward to, to being more muscular. And I, I think that'd be really cool and empowering. And I want to do a photo shoot at the end. Right. And the other person might be like, I really hate every time I look in the mirror and, you know, I, I don't want to, to be this anymore. I want to change that. So in the, the, the former example, that's someone who is trying to approach something. And in the latter example, they're trying to avoid what they currently have. And I mean, there's nothing that I'm not making a value judgment about them. But when we look at the data on approach versus avoidance related goals, the likelihood improves pretty substantially when you have an approach goal versus an avoidance goal. Right. And this is mirrored not only in like goal setting studies, uh, but also when we discriminate between facilitative and debilitative uh, perfectionism in athletes. So uh, there's what's called perfectionist striving, 
and there's what's called perfectionist concerns. And these, when we all, by the way, psychology research, what I'm, which I'm not an expert in, but I dabble in because I'm a sports scientist. Um, all psychology research is based upon like these scales, right? So we validate some scale. We ask people questions that are, that are quantitative. You add up the points and you get like, oh, you got this many points and this and this many points and that. So you can get a perfectionism score, which on its own can predict some things. Uh, but in other questionnaires, you can kind of delineate that to perfectionist striving and perfectionist concerns. So perfectionist striving is a little more similar to what we might um, think of as like pursuing excellence. Like uh, it, it's more about an approach-based goal of I'm trying to push myself the best I can, do these big things, achieve these goals. Um, and there's not an element of fear of failure or not being good enough. And perfectionist concerns are all about the inverse. I need to be perfect because I'm not perfect and then scary thing, right? I won't X, Y, Z, or the coach won't like me, or I won't be accepted by the community, or I, I, I will hate myself or all that. So that it's all about um, falling short uh, of, of perfection. So the question is, okay, why is an athlete trying to be perfect? Is it because they want to push themselves to the highest level because they believe they're capable of it? It's an empowering experience and they're striving, right, towards something? Or are they afraid of falling short of perfection for various reasons? And when you see higher scores for perfectionist concerns, you see a higher relationship between burnout and overtraining. But there is no relationship with perfectionist striving. If anything, sometimes there's slightly positive relationships, right? So again, you can see similar behaviors from the from like from looking uh, on on something as a coach or as a fellow athlete, even on the same team as someone. But if you don't really know the cognitions behind some of the behaviors, it doesn't tell the full story, you know. So that's why like bodybuilding is a funny thing. It's like if you were to take someone who was not competing for the stage and you were like, and you had them do all the same behaviors as a bodybuilder, just in the eating realm, like for no reason, you know, we'd be like, ah, they probably have an eating disorder. But as soon as they tell you, I'm going to put on the posing trunks in September, they're like, oh, sweet. Good, good luck, bro. I can't <laughs> wait to see you crush it. And, and I'm not saying that, oh, and that is actually unhealthy what bodybuilders are doing. They just have an excuse. What I'm saying is, is that the, the cognitions behind the goals and the behaviors that support it, all have to be considered together to determine whether something is facilitative or not. And ultimately, the person who decides is, is, is the person doing it, right? So mm -hmm. I think another really big framing for everything we're talking about as a coach, because, you know, we have these, these kind of crises of, consci of, conscious, of conscience, excuse me, um, like when some of the data came out initially suggesting that a lot of the tracking and monitoring behaviors could be harmful. You know, I, 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 do, I, I dove deep into this and I was really concerned about it. I think the data has actually flipped a bit and it, and it does support what I'm saying now is it really depends on who is tracking, why they're tracking and what kind of history with tracking do they have and, and other potential former uh, patho, pathopsychology, right? But um, if someone is, uh, someone is doing all these behaviors, you know, and I'm like, I'm worried about it. It's not my job as a coach to necessarily impose my judgment of those behaviors on them is to ask questions, right? It's to help them look inward and, and see if they can answer why am I doing what I'm doing and, and does it serve me and do I want to keep doing it? Um, is it approach goal versus an avoidance goal? So anyway, going kind of all the way back full circle, 
as a coach, some of the red flags I have are if I'm hearing a lot of avoidance goals, if I'm hearing, you know, perfectionist concerns, that's going to prompt a conversation. You know, I want to get them to the point where they can voice some of those perfectionist concerns, voice some of those avoidance goals, which are in a body composition sense, typically attached to poor body image um, or, you know, a pressure to look a certain way or something like that. And while I, I will, you know, I, I can, if, especially if they've given me the trust, I can make my, my thoughts known about that, you know, that I, hey, I don't think this is necessarily good. And here's some alternative perspectives. Really, my job is to kind of ask questions and be like, you know, do you think that's a good reason for to, to do that? Like, do you think other people, you know, because sometimes people are much harsher on themselves than others. Like, do you think other people who are perfectly healthy, but have societal pressures to look thinner or leaner, do you think it would be good for them to pursue a fat loss goal, especially when they're not enjoying it, don't like it and don't feel like there's other benefits besides just not disliking themselves, right? Or just to get more, 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 more social media approval. And I think just uh, the role of the coach when you're working with someone or even screening somebody, depending on where they're at or just talking about their goals in your first session is to help them make those realizations because, you know, like what psychologists don't do is in the first session, ask you a bunch of questions and be like, here's your problem. And here's the way you need to think. See you next time. Send me a check. Right. You don't make realizations. You don't have these um, monumental shifts in, in motivation and, and direction of life path and values without really having these realizations yourself. Because that's what shifts, shifts values. That's what changes values, which then changes behavior, which then leads to different outcomes. Or sometimes the same behavior, but for a different reason and a, and a much more gratifying outcome, you know. So I talked around a lot with all of those. But I think um, the main points that I want to make are that it's difficult to gauge whether something is intrinsic or extrinsic from the outside. Whether it's one layered piece to a more complex motivational a hierarchy that someone hopefully has as an athlete or whether it's kind of the dominant thing, uh, whether they are behaving in a way that looks like, you know, perfectionist perfectionism and working really hard and doing all the kind of the obsessive stuff that athletes do for reasons that are striving towards them, fulfilling their potential and approach goal, or that they're trying to avoid things that they don't want to be true about themselves and fears and self doubt. And they're actually having perfectionist concerns. So all of that, is make, makes it challenging to really be like, yep, bad bucket, extrinsic, good bucket, intrinsic, get your SDT, mm. sort yourself, bro. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, um, it's definitely very interesting. And, um, like one, one thing that I've been thinking about recently is like, if somebody's not competing for the stage, cause then you could say, well, you know, getting to uh, below a healthy body fat would it's necessary it's not even something that's favorable it's it's required but but those who are not getting on stage but are healthy otherwise healthy the pursuing health seeking behaviors because they like working out in a healthy body fat range like below 25 probably for men or 20 maybe 22 or something um you know what is you know what what's the reason is there is is it really intrinsic and i guess you just basically said that it's hard to hard to say mm. like why would one want to necessarily get leaner other than feeling pressures from society which we know is is i don't know if it's growing i don't have any data to say but like 
it's very prevalent, right? In TikTok There's trends data. are like, okay, well, yeah. maybe, I, I, I don't know if, if it agrees with me or not, but uh it does. TikTok trends, you uh, yeah. see like kids. Like, using uh, unfortunately, yeah, so. there's absolutely yeah. higher levels of uh, disordered eating. And it's actually rising in men at faster rates than women. Like women, it's been high. It is high. It's still high and it's not good. And men were like, hey, we want some of that. <laughs> you know, So you're, you're seeing um, higher rates of disordered eating, um, body image issues in, in, uh, in, in, in the society. So, yeah, you're not wrong. And there mm. are data to show that social media can act as a, a moderator there. Um, probably yeah. not the cause, right? But it, but it ampl- amplifies social messages, right? Yeah, and I mean, I don't know. I, I'm not a psychologist, but I don't know if like you know, using trembolone would be considered, you know, has some sort of disorder. Maybe not eating disorder, but like uh, some sort of body image. I mean, you're not certainly not using veterinary medicine for for your health purposes. Maybe you could say mastery and make it big as possible, but like. You know, that is that stepping into the uh, disordered part where it's like I'm, I'm willing to sacrifice my future health so that I can look good, right? Um, and and why? Like the the, the reason because I considered using steroids in the past, like sure. you know, years ago, um, had even once ordered like they were legal at the time or like legal mm-hmm. uh, oral uh, tr- pro hormones. I never actually got them, but 2013, I think, after my first show, when I gained like 30 pounds blew up and just felt like you know, nearly at tears to be honest because I felt so yep. bad about myself um I was like I'm gonna get I don't know how whatever gain 15 pounds of muscle and feel better about myself and I actually was quite in, in reflection upon reflection I was quite mature to say like all right there's a problem here right yeah. why do I think 15 pounds of muscle is going to make me feel better or is that what I want? Like what physically, what would 15 pounds of just physical tissue, how would that make me feel better internally? And is that the right way to go down? And I, and ultimately that's why I did. And that's why I don't because like, I'll be the same Adam, but just, just like 30 pounds heavier. I'm probably sweating more now because we, because I'm a lot heavier and with yep. higher blood pressure as well. So that, that's something that I've really thought about is like, yeah, people say like, oh, I, I want to look like Chris Bumstead or whoever the men's physique, better like champion is at the moment and but yet we're following these behaviors that you not you're not a competitor like fair enough someone uses anabolics and they're an open bodybuilder like not on drug te- not drug tested you know you're gonna use steroids if you want to be competitive but you're, you're using it you're not competing and you're trying to get to this really lean level of body fat like is that you know is, can that be based off societal pressures to to feel like what the the male should be or whatever you see youtubers with like they got yachts in you know some Balearic island got a lot of money like you know supposedly got the yeah well that, that's what i'm you know that's what's that's what we're sold but, but why do you think why is that that we're sold that you know that well i mean social social hierarchy right social signaling like saying hey um, I look good. Like, I mean, I mean they, some of these people even call them alpha males. Like, like, like it's very, like, it's very clear. Like what they're, what they're, what they're, what they're selling you is like, there are, there's a social Undertake. ladder, there's a social hierarchy and success happens when you're at the top of it. And the thing that success is defined by is being known by people, loved by many, having a lot of money, being successful in mate acquisition, you know, we're mammals and, uh, you know, and, and, and looking, you know, being more dominant than other men and having more muscle and having, you know, all, all this stuff and, and being good at everything and, and yada, yada, yada. And, um, you know, 
there's a reason why that appeals to young men because young people are still trying to figure out their place in the world. And in absence of a strong self-identity, they are looking to external, like they're looking to societal acceptance, right? And even someone with a strong self-identity still needs relatedness. You know, we still all, all need, even the most introverted person out there has some need for acceptance and acknowledgement, even if it's in a small social circle and it's not on the whole internet, you know? Um, but the larger that gap of self-identity, uh, the, the, the more you're going to want to fulfill that, that void with, with social acceptance. I mean, we've all been in high school, right? Like that could be extremely strong pressure. You will, I, I did things in high school where I look back and I'm like, ah, that does not at all align with my values today, but it was in pursuit of being more popular and more accepted by my peers and not standing out and feeling like I was, you know, like I'm okay. You know, I have, I have worth and, and I have not been judged by those around me. So, I mean, that's mm -hmm. a huge part of being human is, um, is being accepted. And, and it's something that's slightly unavoidable. Um, even when you have a strong self identity and you never want to, you know, not the goal is not to try to close yourself off and be an Island, but rather to have a community around you with shared values who acknowledge you and accept you for who you are. And, you know, whatever size that is, whatever size it is kind of deal. But, um, yeah, I think we're very susceptible to that type of, of marketing for understandable reasons. And I, I think it's really easy to sell anything that we therefore attach at this time in society with being in that position, you know, and if that's the physique, then because you're in the fitness kind of space, then that sells really well, you know? Mm -hmm. um, now to get to your, like, so you, that, that was kind of the very tail end of your question is why do we get sold that? Um, because it sells because we're humans. And then to your, the rest of your question, which is, is it even, does it make sense to pursue body composition goals as a non-competitor? Um, it really comes down to the person's why. Um, so from an objective perspective, like if we want to take a step back, you can have like, like BMI is only a good predictor of health and it's a predictor. It's not a status of health, which I think is important when you're like over 30 or like you're in the teens, when you're in either one of those categories, there's a, there's a very strong probability that you're going to see some, some correlated health issue, right? Um, over 30, um, that's when there's a very high possibility of saying having high blood pressure, high triglycerides, elevated risk for, for various, um, you know, negative health outcomes. And same thing, like if you're at, you know, like 18, 17, you, you're probably, uh, unhealthy, for, for, for other reasons as well and different correlations, but it, it's pretty strong possibility. However, between the ranges of like 21 to 29, um, the best thing you want to do if you want to find out about your health is actually measure it, not look at a predictor, get your blood pressure, you know, get blood work done, um, you know, assess, assess your heart health, get a full screening, you know, uh, because that's where you get such a range of, 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 uh, of possibilities. So if, if someone is saying, to a coach, Hey, I, I'm really interested in my health and I want to lose some weight for that reason. Um, you go, Oh, yeah, I think that's awesome that you're interested in, in improving your health. Let's get some health measurements, you know, let's, mm. let's get you, let's get you a blood panel done, you know, and then you make decisions based upon that. And if they're not interested in that and they're like, no, 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 I, I just want to lose weight. It's like, Oh, well, let's, let's talk about why cause it's clearly not your health since you're not interested in figuring out what your, yeah. uh, you know, your blood glucose is or your, uh, you know, your HDL. Right. Um, and 
if it then becomes apparent that they are wanting to change the way they look um, for potentially, you know, societal pressures or, or, or other reasons, that again, I still think that's not necessarily a problem. It really has to just come down to uh, how they internalize that. Um, if they want to look, you know, a certain way, then it's important to assess like, all right, well, do you have a sense of self-worth independent from the way you look? How much does your evaluation of the way you look impact your self-worth? Um, and I think like an important thing is to be able to see your intrinsic value independent from the way you appear, right? Um, because we're all eventually going to look like a, a wrinkled raisin, right? I mean, this is something maybe, you're going to have. Maybe not that guy, uh, Brian Johnson. Do you know him? No, I don't. Have you know seen Brian. the guy? No. He, you, you should. Whenever you have ten minutes, you should YouTube him. He he sold his company, which is called Brain Tree or Brain FM or something, for eight hundred million, and and now has a team of thirty clinicians, researchers, and doctors ah, to be a model. Yeah, and he <laughs> pays two. He spends two million. Yeah. Uh, a year on his body and he gets like ultrasounds like every second week and MRIs every like, uh, obviously they're, they're, if you pay doctors enough money, they, they won't tell you that there's noise in the data and you shouldn't be doing it that frequently. But uh, yeah, he, he's the, the uh, reversing his epigen. Actually, Eric Crexter uh, did a research brief or whatever they called in mass on it, uh, but he's reversing his epigenetic clock age, which again is probably another algorithm sold by a private company to, feed into people paying them more money. But, but anyway, <laughs> if I had to predict, he's still, he's still going to die. So, <laughs> yeah. so far, uh, so far, I think the, the, the war with, um, with, with father time has been lost by every single human who's ever existed. So maybe, maybe he'll win. But, uh, my prediction is that he will also end up a crusty, grizzled, wrinkly person like all of us who looks in the mirror and goes, man, I really like the way I looked when I was in my twenties, thirties, forties, or fifties. Um, so this is something eventually every human needs to face is that our, uh, our bodies are inherently limited and we need to have value and worth beyond that. And you can delay that for, I mean, you can spend apparently $800 million trying to delay that as much as you want, or you can like, you know, start working on being an adult and, you know, look inward and go, all right, so what do I have to contribute? Who am I? What's my identity? What value do I have? And, and then if you have a good sense of self-worth, if you have a strong self-identity, you can absolutely want to look different, you know? Um, and Like a preference. I mean, yeah. And it can even be, I want to look better to other people. I think that's okay. It's just how, how strong is that? Does that get to the point where it's actually a, like a pathology? You know, like um, if... if like you, you can say, look, I don't buy into the, the idea that we should look thinner because it's not associated with health. It doesn't make any sense to me. You know, it, it's just this thing that society is putting me a pressure on. Great. If you can't, though, and you can healthily look, quote unquote, better as society currently defines it and get a little bit leaner. And that's something you want to do. Who am I to tell you that you shouldn't? I don't agree. I like it. Like personally, I I don't have any problem being in, in the t like 20, 22, 23, 24% body fat. Um, so long as I'm healthy, um, you know, my, my, my face is a little less, you know, lean than it is right now, you know, and things like that. I I'm okay with that, but I'm not going to put pressure, especially as a coach where my job is to let them tell me their goals and what their values are and what they want. 
but I will help them be aware of the fact that, hey, I think you're doing this without a strong sense of self underneath it, without a strong sense of self-worth. You're pursuing it in these negative ways. Uh, this is probably going to lead to burnout. And actually, the data would say you're not even going to be successful because right mm-hmm. now this is an avoidance-related goal and you have all the, it's all, it's all extrinsic. It's not intrinsic. Cause when you look at the data, when we look at like meta analyses that are based upon SDT, self-determination theory, and they look at uh, intrinsic versus extrinsic motivators, we see that when athletes have a strong sense of self-determination theory or exercisers have their, their three needs met for uh, self-determination theory, they're more likely to be intrinsically motivated and they're more likely to successfully pursue their goals. More goals that are approach versus avoidance are successful. Athletes burn out less when they are uh, perfectionist strivers versus people with perfectionist concerns. So the data all points in the same direction from various different subfields of, of psychology, suggesting that like like someone could sit here and listen to me and, and be like, ah, I, I don't buy that. Like, I think we do live in a, a strong social hierarchy and these are biologically driven uh, reasons why we want to look this way. And you can find those arguments online. But what you can't argue with is that the types of motivation that we talked about and those types of pursuits for those reasons, they're correlated with failure, not success, or at least lower rates of success, right? Mm-hmm. So you can we can argue about the roots of this and we can talk about lobsters and whatever, but ultimately in the end, like if you buy into that narrative and you decide to pursue that and you're like, look, it's fine that I don't like the way I look and I want to become better and that's that's all good and I want to climb that social hierarchy and I want to look good and my value to society is, is looking good, making money and, and, and having things. It's like, all right, well, the data would suggest that you're probably not going to be successful or you're making it harder with that worldview. Yeah. So could I ask you a personal question then related to that? Yeah. Uh, so what is your shoe size? Now I'm only joking. That's not the question. <laughs> the question is, uh, do you feel like your self-worth goes down when you are 23% body fat, not like, or 22, whatever, like, does it, does it change a lot? And then that would be the question to you. And then the, the second part of that would be, do you think it's problematic if somebody says, I'm going to feel better about myself, not physically, but mentally, because my self-worth will go up. Most people probably wouldn't even, uh, wouldn't even think about this necessarily. They just mm-hmm. know that I want to improve. I want to feel good. At I'm doing it for myself or I'm, I'm feeling, I want to feel good. Um, um, and, you know, we, obviously we have these health promotion activities, but, you know, irrespective of those, or we control those. So what are your thoughts on those two questions or what are your answers? Yeah, I would say I, it's too strong of a word to say that my self-worth goes down when I'm higher in body fat. But I definitely do feel the effects of it. I think for me, it probably comes to uh, like relatedness. So I, I relate to the bodybuilding community and my reason for wanting to compete in bodybuilding is very much related to pushing my potential in something that I enjoy and I like the challenge of it. And I like the, the artistry of, uh, of what a muscular physique looks like, you know? Um, and so I kind of see it as a combination of art and pursuit of mastery. Right. And I find that I, I get benefits from my own personal, uh, growth from going through the crucible of contest prep and, seeing if I can do it better and better and better. Uh, and I'm also a competitive person. And I just, you know, if it wasn't this, it'd be like, I don't know, golf or something. God, not golf, anything else, but, you know, but, but, but something, right? So when I am really high in body fat uh, relative to me being in stage condition as a bodybuilder, 
sometimes I feel like, uh, am I a bodybuilder right now? Do I even look like a bodybuilder? So I feel like I'm potentially losing a, self, a sense of loss of relatedness. So that does impact my overall kind of landscape. You know, like what the, I'm the really... irony is, though, probably most bodybuilders are in, in the off-season shape. 100. percent Exactly. So, and so that that those, those cognitions, when I'm aware of them, they prompt a conversation, an internal conversation, just like that. Adam, that's what I say to myself. Like, yo, there's a ton of bodybuilders who are very high in body fat, trying to get huge right now, and this is a completely acceptable, normal thing. But it's difficult to see that, especially when, let's say, three months ago or six months ago, I was in state shape. You know, hmm. and um, so and th those those are one of the so th there's definitely a proximity uh, to the goal I was just focusing on and how focused I was on it and the time scale it takes me to get high in body fat and it's something that I absolutely has gotten better at over time. Like in uh, this last mm -hmm. contest season, I went from you know 80 kilos on stage to 90 kilos about six weeks later, and it really didn't bother me that much, you know compared to prior years where I had a similar experience to you in 07, my first season where, you know, put on more than 30 pounds. And I'm like, Oh my God. Like I, it was not necessarily the body fat I got to. I didn't like the way I looked, but it wasn't that bad. What really hit me was that I had no ability to control my eating and that I was just kind of binging. And I felt like, uh, what I identified with and what I gained from bodybuilding was this discipline. And then it just went out the window. So then am I, did I really gain anything? And I felt like I lost a bunch of self-efficacy. So that's me personally. Um, but I also am not someone who got into bodybuilding because I was trying to look a certain way. Um, I very much, or, or, or changed the way I look, I should say. I very much had an approach mindset from the start, and I'm very fortunate for that. Um, I was also just a skinny kid, you know, and I didn't feel bad about being a skinny kid. I never got any negative messages from that at a young enough age or from the right people or the wrong people, I guess you could say that made me feel bad about the way I looked. I never had any body image issues. And, and like, if anything, I thought I was a good looking guy in high school. Right. And, and so, um, fortunate, you know, that, that's, that's, I didn't do anything to deserve that. That's just kind of the, the life experience I had. Um, so in my early twenties, what got me into, into lifting was an outlet and I wanted to feel, like stronger and to have more agency in my life because I was in the time period. I didn't feel like I had that. Um, and I was like, well, I want to get big and huge. Not, I want to not be small and, and weak, right? Like mm -hmm. I want to be big and strong. Like I want to move towards that. And I didn't see anything wrong with where I was currently. And I didn't look at skinny people and be like, why are you so weak? You know, like I was just like, Hey, I want to see if I can do this thing, you know, like this, this new chapter. So, um, when people are coming at it from a different angle, they can have a very different experience than I had. And I've worked with a ton of people like that and I have friends of people like that. So I think, um, part of their journey ideally should be trying to reframe the why behind what they're pursuing and to hopefully get to the point where they realize um, I was like, I have intrinsic self-worth regardless of what I'm doing in, in this bodybuilding sector. And sometimes that results in them. Well, I don't need to bodybuild. You know, or sometimes it results in, let me reframe what bodybuilding means to me and pursue it or take a slightly different angle. Like that example I gave of someone who was pursuing aesthetics and then went to powerlifting. So the answer to what is the right change, uh, or, or leaving of the sport and going to some other health and fitness activity 
um, is really dependent upon them. And I think our what's incumbent upon us as health and fitness content creators and coaches is to try to create an environment where that person can have those realizations. Uh, you ask the right questions and you get them to explore, of course, with their permission, their motivations for doing something. And then they can figure out because once they, they clearly state their own values and they can identify what their behaviors and their why is for all of it, then they can look and be like, oh, are my actions in line with my values? And this is serving what I, who I want to be. And if the answer is no, you don't have to motivate them. They decide to do something different or they start working towards that, right? That's the natural mm. consequence of those new levels of awareness. You know, an existential crisis is a great opportunity, right? Mm. Where you actually examine why am I doing what I'm doing? And the inevitable outcomes of that are a change to doing what you're doing in some way. Uh, because we don't like to sit and being in a place of not being aligned with our values and doing something we, we, we dislike. That's why it, it, be, it turns into burnout. Yeah. And, and we do know that like, well, hundred percent of people have a body image, but as you mentioned or alluded to, but eating disorders and men are on the rise and I believe body image issues as well. And by uh, the laws of um, deduction, people who tend to want to change their body are probably going to be the people who want to have or have body image issues, right? Or at least everybody who has a body image issue probably mm -hmm. wants to change their body. So they're the ones going to want to reach yeah. out for coaching or uh, whatever, whatever kind of intervention they, they want to go for. And I, it's pro it's probably for, it's it's probably due to the lack of knowledge for a lot of or awareness for a lot of coaches and fitness content creators whatever is that they just they probably experience it themselves like I was in a bigger body or more body fat I got leaner I felt better I'm selling you confidence and I see that all the time I've seen it like a couple hours ago you know like get stronger more confident um and it can tend to prey on people that are uh, are are in that camp of uh, avoidance goals, right? I'm feeling shit about myself because I'm whatever, 25% body fatter, even though they're technically healthy. And as a side note, I think fitness influencers or fitness people over-index on how lean you need to be. Um, mm. But, you know, maybe using health as a masquerading uh, lack of confidence or poor body images as health improvement. So how do you... What, how do you, how does that sit with you? How do you feel? I know 3DMJ doesn't like, you know, prove your account. You feel a shit about yourself, you know, come join our coaching program, get on stage. Um, I know you definitely don't do that. Um, and Jeff, who I've worked with has definitely helped me move from, I had a poor body image when I was yeah. younger. Didn't even know that. I just thought like, you know, hating fat and stuff. And yeah. I wasn't even fat, but anyway, um, Jeff helped me a lot by doing maintenance phases. And I was like, you know, Maintenance phase, like, I'm not paying you for this shit. I didn't say that, but at the time I was, like, frustrated. But it's really helpful when I was 22 or something. And, um, but, yeah, so how does that sit with you with, like, coaches in general, like, promoting that as, as a confidence improver? And is it a problem, you know, because if, if, if people are coming from a lack of confidence? I mean, I think if... It, you, you know, the, the, the specific words you said, get stronger, improve your confidence, that that doesn't bother me because it's, you know, focused on like a performance outcome. But um, you improve your confidence by looking different than you currently look. There's a lot of issues, potential issues with that, right? Like, especially if, like you said, someone's perfectly healthy and 
you know, they're, they're getting prepped that now, now, now that you could, you could be latching onto inadvertently or inadvertently onto, you know, as someone not feeling good about the way they look and thinking, Oh, if I change that, I will feel more confident. With that said, like I said earlier, someone may feel societal pressure to look a certain way and, and they don't need to look that way from an objective health perspective, hire a coach, look that way and feel more confident. You know, the, the issue though, is that's kind of at best. And I do mean at best, because there's a lot of negative ways I could go. Right. Um, and rather than the way I just painted it very simply, um, at best, I think that's a bandaid on a gunshot wound, right? Um, if your sense of self-worth is not strong enough so that simply being told that you need to look the way society tells you need to look, that then there, then you go to the, to the, the lengths of hiring an online coach, changing your diet and going to the gym on a regular basis to therefore align with society's pressures. Um, the gunshot wound that I'm alluding to is you probably want to work on having a stronger sense of self-worth and that's lasting confidence that you can really get. So something that is, and this kind of goes all the way back to intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation, right? So if, if you have, uh, a, when then connecting back to STT, if you have a strong sense of self-worth, which is going to come from having your psychological needs met, you won't be as victim to kind of the shifting winds of the fitness industry telling you that you're broken, but we can fix you. Um, because if you do buy into the fact that you're broken and the trainer does come along and quote unquote fix you, you are going to feel more accepted and better and, you know, by society. But what did, did you really fix the, the thing that was broken? You know? Um, and I think, I think that's what I'm getting at here is that ultimately people need a strong sense of self-worth. Like yeah. something I like to say is like, mm. do you ever consider like Stephen Hawking, you know, like what was his body image? You know, this is someone who is bound to a wheelchair, cannot move. So obviously had a ton of, of atrophy and muscle wasting, but we would all consider him an incredibly valuable person who contributed to society you know, and it's not like he has not been able to ascend, you know, and do things that matter. So I think sometimes when, when it, things are rooted in fear, we get a very, very narrow view and we kind of hyper-focus in. It's almost like a survival response, you know, I'm getting chased by a tiger. I need to run through the forest right now and everything else goes away, you know? So I feel like I'm not accepted by my peers. I, I don't have value. I don't have sense, sense of worth. It's an existential crisis. Like this is survival related things. So I'm going to focus just on like, let me get my, my belly to look like a six pack, you know, kind of thing. And that'll solve everything. And, uh, yeah, it's our job as coaches to ask the question of, do you, do you really think that you're going to be, you know, happy and have a sense of security and strong self-identity by having a six pack? Yeah. I think the problem is that like if, if someone's selling the six pack, then like they're not going to, you know, no, that's not the person who's uh, going to help you there. That's yeah. True. But yeah, I think in the case of Stephen Hawking's like, it's, it's probably like the reason why he may not have had a bad poor body image, which I, I don't know if he did or not, probably not, but uh, is that he's been accepted in other ways. Like yeah. maybe, you know, like someone who's extremely wealthy, um, uh, that's like overweight, you know, the fat CEO, you know, they, they're accepted or they're admired for other reasons. Maybe that's not healthy either though. You know, you're rich and you have lots of cars or whatever, but like, that's again, probably the same thing, the same issue, uh, 
self-esteem or image i don't know what you would call it but maybe self-worth issue um but just um manifesting in a, in a different way um but what would yeah what would be the problem then if you are except if you do feel more accepted by changing you know i, I don't feel like if self sense of self-worth i want to use my body as a punching bag i get leaner uh, and now all of a sudden i'm feeling a lot better about myself and i do have more self-worth and i think the i don't know if we mentioned it but i think that with overlaying self-determination theory on top of that i think when you have extrinsic goals right that are like body um changing your body to to, to relate to other people in society or to because of peer pressure or societal pressure you don't have the autonomy right even though you decided correct it's, it's the goal you answered you your own physically question, eating the food you answered is that what question. you think yeah absolutely like like you're it's not really your choice to look different right it is society's pressure dictating you do that and you will feel a little bit better but essentially you are living life without autonomy you every time uh, the, the societal winds or the fitness winds shifts or, or a good sales salesperson comes along. Um, you, you are, you're not making the choice. A choice is being made for you because you don't have a strong sense of self-worth and therefore strong autonomy to decide for yourself who you are and what you want to be and where your value is. So in, in lieu of not having a strong sense of self-worth, you're pursuing what, whatever salesperson the industry or society is telling you, you need to do to have it. So you haven't really gotten any more confidence. You've just stepped away from being the thing that is easily marketed as something that isn't confident, right? I don't mm -hmm. look that, that way anymore. Okay, I'm safe for, you know, six months or whatever, you know, or something. So you're still just as much, much at risk for these same issues. So yeah, yeah. exactly. I think, yeah, ultimately the the goal is to have internalized self-worth independent from the, the pressures from from society and I'm, and I'm not saying all societal pressures are bad like there's a strong societal pressure that we shouldn't kill each other you know or or that there's certain shared societal values you know like laws and things like that so i mean i don't want it to make it sound like you need to be an island separate from everything and no matter what you're always good on your own um but to have a it's a, it's a matter of degrees, right? How much does society influence your self-worth, your self-perception? Um, how many different avenues of having value do you have? So one of the correlations when you look at um, body image uh, data is that people who have, you know, some of the eating disorders we, we, we could talk about or... Um, or who have more negative outcomes in response to them, they tend to value what they look like very highly in terms of like their self-worth. So one of the ways around that is not necessarily trying to change that evaluation, but having them have other things about themselves that they can look to and be like, Oh, this is pretty cool. Like, um, my friends tell me I'm, I'm a very supportive person and a good listener. Um, or I'm quite good at X, Y, and Z skill. Um, I'm a fantastic musician or I'm a great conversationalist. Um, or I'm, I'm intelligent or I'm a good writer or like whatever, you know, uh, having some way to contribute. And the thing about contributing is it's easy to do, even if you don't necessarily have like, or feel like you have some great skills, like there's a ton of places you can volunteer at and they would absolutely love you and you'd be critical. 
he would be a game changer mm. for these organizations and for the people involved. Um, yeah. Some of the best things that I think sometimes you can do when you're struggling with depression or a sense of self-identity or self-worth is give freely of your time to help others. And you can see how much of an impact you can make. So, um, you know, it's kind of this inversion of like, you're going out to help others, but you're actually helping yourself. But Hey, that's kind of the way life is. Right. So anyway, I think, yeah, I think to, to kind of circle some, some conversations we've had here is if you are not fulfilling your basic needs, it's very difficult to operate in life consistently and happily and to have control. Um, when you are not fulfilling, when you don't have autonomy or competence or relatedness, um, it's very difficult to have motivating factors that are intrinsic that you can pick up, look at, internalize and go, this is why I do this. This gets me motivated. I like this. I can see myself doing this for a long time. And you reach for external motivators. Um, and a lot of the things we've talked about related to you know, body image and social media and pressures to look a certain way they come from the lack of those things. So if we can, uh, as coaches or as individual athletes, um, do some diagnostic checks internally, like, why am I doing this? Like, if you ask me, why do I compete in bodybuilding, which can be, you know, the pursuit of something that's relatively negative, if it's coming from the wrong place, how can it be so positive? Um, it's because I have strong, uh, you know, reasons for all those things. And I know why I'm doing it. And it's not to do uh, it's, it's not to appease the, the look to anyone else. And I have these competitive desires, I have these extrinsic goals, but they're also layered on top of all these strong, uh, intrinsic motivating factors. So that's the kind of thing that I try to help athletes get to. And it can be a challenging thing. Um, not just in bodybuilding. Like for example, I was at world championships, uh, IPF worlds in Malta, um, powerlifting. And I spoke to a number of very, very high level world champions. And I always do every year and I love to pick their brains. And some of them are in a position where they're currently on top of the world because they're literally a world champion or very close to it. And their motivating factors are extremely extrinsic. Their sense of self-worth is built upon being a high level elite athlete. And that is fine right now because they are those things. Hmm. But yeah, exactly. Like they're eventually they they will either get surpassed by someone else, get older and degrade, get an injury, um, or you know for for whatever reason that they you you can't be the world champ forever, right? And they don't see it because everything's hunky dory in their life. They're on top of the world, um, but I know that they're at risk. And when I talk to some of the more savvy athletes or ones who've had more adversity in life, or they're older or they've had ups and downs in their competitive career already, they've gone through the process of figuring out how do I make myself much more solid in the face of adversity? How do I not get, you know, crashed against the rocks when waves come? How do I get a bronze mm-hmm. and still have a strong sense of self-worth and athletic identity? How tied, how tied up am I into being an athlete? And then how tied up am I into being a world champion athlete? Right? So like a fun thing I like yeah. to ask uh, high level powerlifters is why do you think M M one M two or M three competitors compete? Or um, what do you think about all the other people at world champions world, world championships who are placing in the 10th through 35th position? Do you think they hate themselves or like, well, how do you think they feel about being here? You know? And mm-hmm. sometimes it's a consideration they'd never had. Like they're kind of like, Oh, you know, they, 
it doesn't compute. Sometimes they do, some, some athletes are very clear, like, well, I know they're maximizing the potential and they're taking it as far, as far as they can. We're the same, right? And I know those, those, those athletes are going to be good, but the ones who are like, honestly, I don't know why masters competitors do it. If I was getting weaker every year and I couldn't win and I had to go to a, this, uh, worst division, quote unquote, uh, to, 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 to be relevant again, I would feel like I was, you know, I was faking it or, uh, yeah. Yeah, like honestly, I wouldn't compete if I couldn't place in the top five or something like that. You know, like so you can tell, like, oh man, you're gonna have a rude awakening one day. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not for five years, but it's gonna be tough when it happens. Yeah, we need to hook them up with that uh, Brian Johnson guy. Eight hundred million. <laughs> yeah, they need, they need, <laughs> but uh, eight hundred million dollars invested in keeping him as a world champion. Just what prize money? What you get IPF worlds? No, absolutely, Some, right similar. There. Okay, solid in, uh, yeah. in local currency. I don't know they use euros actually, don't they? <laughs> yeah, they um, do. So, um, yeah, I've heard something similar around like uh, business owners who retire, like their self of their sense of identity is just like lost because they're just like you know working seventy, eighty hours, like business owner, make a lot of money for years, and then just like is gone right same with like uh i've heard tim ferris i don't know if you heard him like mm-hmm. og podcaster he, oh, he's yeah. talked about like diversifying like, kind of like the way you diversify your stock portfolio and um, so that if one something tanks then it's not like you lose all your money you should diversify your identity so if if something like you break a leg or or whatever you still got these other pillars that are going to keep the overall balance there versus like you know you're an ipf world's powerlifter and that's all you do and you get paid to do it and your social media is followed on it and then you know break a leg or something and then you're kind of not screwed but you're at higher risk of yeah. of, of facing some some challenges the, the final thing i wanted to touch on and i think we could have probably left there because it's been a very very insightful podcast but is on the actual physique competitors because i've heard you talk about it maybe it's iron culture or something like that a long ago about the rates of I don't know if it was eating disorders or body image issues or whatever within physique competitors. And I think it was specifically physique competitors because like, and I've even thought about this myself is that I, I definitely did a poor body image uh, when I was younger and probably one of the reasons why I maybe started competing first. And there was no such thing as men's physique back then. And um, there was no natural bodybuilding in my country. At the time I did a fitness show, the other guys were not fit natural. Um, but what I've thought about is like bodybuilding maybe doesn't appeal to the masses as much. Like no one really likes to see like your, your, your ass looking like a walnut. So it's like, maybe you're maybe not. A, that's why I've just thought maybe that I've hypothesized why maybe people who do bodybuilding and natural bodybuilding aren't as at risk or men's physique, which is more like stream mainstream or whatever. And, and more appealing to people who might have body image issues. Like you don't want to have like, you know, serrated glutes or like be able to see every mm-hmm. single part of your quadricep so what what has that research shown because i'm sure people who do horse riding don't have the same prevalence of body image issues as people who do men's physique bad example because jockeys have to be very very small and they have a ton of uh <laughs> okay. you're right actually I've, I've actually seen stuff when i was doing massive uh, maybe, I mean, yeah okay maybe that's a bad example but a non-weight related sport yeah, definitely. You, you, there's there's kind of this this hierarchy where you see um, aesthetic and weight class restricted sports, uh, where you see the highest incidences among athletes of body image and uh, and eating disorders, um, and that encompasses you know lightweight rowers, uh, jockeys, physique athletes, powerlifters, weightlifters, um, and you could include also like ballet dancers, things like that. Um, 
Yeah. So the specific thing you're, you're referring to, there's a study by Lindsay and colleagues, I want to say it was 2019. And it was a South American group of men's physique athletes. So for anyone who's listening, that's putting on the board shorts. And I think it's close to a third of them had been previously diagnosed with either a body image or an eating disorder, but it was a very small sample. So we don't have nearly enough data to make a statement about, you know, bikini competitors having higher incidences than, you know, women's physique or women's bodybuilding or men's physique competitors higher than men's bodybuilding. But certainly when you have a division uh, that is more in line with the messages the society is giving, you will have uh, different people choosing to compete in those divisions. Um, and in my experience as a coach, this is purely anecdotal. I actually see higher rates of what I would consider unhealthy kind of approaches to the sport and higher rates of, um, yeah, like body image issues is probably what I would uh, classify them as um, in men's physique competitors and uh, women's bikini competitors than uh, the bodybuilders. The bodybuilders, it's not to say that there's no issues there. They often tend to be a little more OCD um, and tend to be just a little more extreme in their approach and willing to push themselves to places that are just like, they're just more extreme, you know, but it's not necessarily that they are um, as impacted as uh, those other people by the way they should look for society. So different, different potential issues. Um, that's again, not a published data set. Um, I've done a ton of looking at all of this data. And the one thing that you can say for sure is that you see, um, higher rates of eating disorders and body image issues in all physique competitors broadly uh, compared to the general population of exercisers, but not as high as people who are um, in terms of the traits, because you, you can't diagnose, diagnose someone by, by putting them in a study, right? That requires a one-on-one -on -one consultation with a psychologist or the appropriate uh, healthcare practitioner. But what you can do is you can give them questionnaires um, that you know, show the signs and symptoms of a thing. And you'll see more signs and symptoms in uh, people who have already been diagnosed with eating disorders and body image issues than you do in, in physique competitors. And I think we have to be careful um, when we talk about the sport um, for a couple of reasons. We don't have cause and effect established, and it is probably a very complex relationship. And we don't want to pathologize bodybuilding. Um, like most sports, have something that if pursued to the highest level have a negative outcome and there's something that 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 should be just openly addressed and and that that people should acknowledge when and know before they get into it it's all about informed consent uh, like in contact sports knowing that tbis are a possibility right mm -hmm. or hell just a busted acl right and that can really negatively impact you uh, likewise when you're pursuing a weight class restricted sport or, or an aesthetic sport um that you're going to have reds, right? You're going to experience relative energy, energy deficiency. You're going to have extended periods of low energy availability. You're going to dip below your lower intervention point. In most cases, not all, you just happen to have a really low, low one. That's your body fat percentage. Um, and that that'll have negative health consequences, potentially both physiologically and psychologically. And if you have a prior history of disorder and eating or body image issues, it can tap into that and exacerbate it. Or if you currently have them, yeah, it's probably a really a bad idea to get into physique sport. Um, and I think you're right. 
I think uh, a lot of these higher rates are at least partially explained by um, reverse causality. So people who are uh, very interested in physique change, becoming aware of bodybuilding and thinking that's a a competitive outlet for them. Um, But that's not always necessarily a negative thing. Um, And I was mentioning earlier how I became very concerned about monitoring and tracking behaviors. Uh, The latest data, the actual causational data, would suggest that it is not tracking that is inherently problematic, but it is a moderating factor that if someone does have uh, disordered eating patterns or has an eating disorder and they track, it can make it worse. It's not the same thing as causing it though. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I think right right now that the data is doesn't suggest that um, bodybuilding generates eating disorders or generates uh, body image concerns. And I, I don't really think it makes sense for it to, because like you said, it's not really a mainstream pursuit. Um, yeah. But I think it can absolutely act as a moderating factor where it exacerbates issues for people who are getting into bodybuilding as almost a mask for them acting out their um, body image concerns and as a vehicle for uh, eating disorders or disorder eating patterns. So I think that's something that we just have to be very aware of. Um because it's, it's, it's kind of the same as someone who is a violent person who wants to hurt people getting into mixed martial arts, right? Um, it's a parallel. Never thought it's of not, Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not a perfect analogy. Uh, and, and, I, and I'm sure people can pick this apart if they're fans of MMA. But, you know, in mixed martial arts, you're supposed to just do what's necessary to win the fight. You're not actually trying to give the other person a concussion. You want to knock them out, which does mean they get a concussion, but you don't want it to be the highest severity concussion. You're trying to be the most effective athlete in that situation to win. The goal is not to harm the other competitor. That is what happens in the course of competition, right? And in bodybuilding, you are trying to get as lean as possible to display the best physique, and that requires calorie restriction, but you're not doing it for the same reasons of someone with anorexia who's trying to get as lean as possible and is having all these negative health consequences, even though there's a fair amount of overlap. And, mm. uh, and that's why it goes back to like me saying like, look, you, you can't really understand whether something is pathological unless you understand the full cognitions behind the motivations. And then also the behaviors, if you look at just any one of those aspects, it's not going to give you the full picture. You know, we all have some of these negative cognitions sometimes, but are they strong enough for to act on them? Okay. We need some behaviors. Okay. Bodybuilders display these similar behaviors, not all of them have these negative cognitions like someone with an eating disorder has. So that's not necessarily a problem because once the season's over, they bounce back or they're able to manage that in the context with still being a healthy, well-rounded human. They're just tired, not sleeping well and a little grumpy and they wish they could have more carbs. You know, that's, that's not a, that's not an eating disorder. Right. So, so I think, I think it's just important to, to really get that full picture. Yeah, I actually had Ian Steele on the podcast before who's done research in, well, he's actually asked asked the question, is bodybuilding uh, Mm. pathology or or the bodybuilder suffer from pathological issues or something like that? And and like short answer is like, no. Um, But I I know you have a, uh, I don't know, a psychotherapist or psychologist on hand at 3MJ or I don't know if she's a psychiatrist. Amanda Rizzo, she is a licensed clinical counselor. Okay, counselor. So, when people do present, and probably because you everything that Trudy MJ market is bodybuilding, um, but I know that they work with general population as well. If someone does present with these challenges, 
uh, avoidance goals, um, feels terrible about themselves. <clears throat> you, what is the what is the the course of action there? Is it like taking a weight neutral approach? Is it trying to just get them working on their on their health? Um, or do you just say, well, like, look, it's probably not a good idea, but we're still going to facilitate it? Oh well, I mean, it's it's pretty straightforward. We're 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 like a bodybuilding and powerlifting coaching company, and if people have non competitive bodybuilding powerlifting goals, we're happy to work with them. And to the best of the ability of each one of the coaches, when they think there is something that is exceeding their scope of practice, you know, and the person has uh, an issue that would be better served by actual therapy, um, the coach reaches out to Amanda and says, hey, here's what's going on. What do you think? And we keep our specialists on retainer for that. And they give the coach advice. And sometimes it's like, hey, this is not an issue. Or sometimes it's like, hey, this is more than an issue than you should handle. I want you to put them in touch with me. So I think it's really important to understand your scope of practice and to make sure that you have a uh, like that that referral network because, you know, mm. trainers are asked to do everything, but we can only do so much. And we have to know where the, the borders of our scope connects. Like, are we where you got a little bit of pain and we're dealing with some some hip stuff, you know, in the course of your powerlifting training. So I'm going to suggest X, Y and Z and then ask you about your pain. But OK, we're actually now in physical therapy territory. Let me get, yeah. let me connect you with someone from clinical athlete or, or Nick Licamelli, you know, who was our, our physical yeah. therapist. Um, same thing with the mental stuff. So it's really, it's really a very similar, uh, kind of construct and way, a way of viewing it. It's good to be aware of all this data and, and understanding of basics, the basics of, uh, of some of the, the psychology that goes into like absolutely exercise psychology, motivational psychology. You want to have all these tools like motivational interviewing and you want to be a client centered coach person-centered coach, athlete-centered coach, whatever you want to call it. Um, but we're not in the business of diagnosing. So you do have to have a someone you can lean on and you have to have an understanding of kind of where the boundaries of, of where your expertise is most helpful to the athlete or client ends and where you actually, you know, shoulder tap someone and, and with the permission of the, the, uh, the client, of course, bring someone in to help them who's in a better position to do so. Yeah. Eric, it has been uh, fantastic once again to, to chat to you. It's been a while. Um, I know you've got uh, some shows coming up yourself. Uh, the the question that was on my mind is, are you going to be over 80 kilos this time? I don't think so because I'm trying to get even leaner, bro. So, um, uh-huh. no, this is uh, this, this has been a great chat. Thanks for having me on. And I'm really glad that we're, we're talking through this topic. I think it's an undervalued one, but probably the most valuable out of many of the topics that are out there if you were to rank them as far as what's going to have the biggest impact on, on, on you or your clients, depending on who's listening. But yeah, I've got shows basically September 30th, all the way through to worlds and uh, November 18th. And I'm pretty much competing every weekend or every other weekend from that whole time period. Um, and yeah, I was um, on stage a little heavier than 80, but my lowest weigh in 2019 was like 79.5. And I do think I can get a little leaner than last time. So I haven't put on so much muscle since 2019 that I that I think I, I won't be under 80. I've had a low weigh-in thus far of 82.6, and I am uh, looking like if I wanted to get more and more and more diced, I'd probably have another three to four kilos to lose. So I'm probably going to be under 80, but uh, mm-hmm. I hope I look like I'm 100. <laughs> I'm sure you will, Eric. And uh, best <laughs> of luck in those shows. Thank you, sir. Um, I hope, hopefully you make it to Worlds. Um, I will. And uh, and then you you 
you do well in that class, but irrespective, uh, I know you're going to enjoy it. And, uh, there's going to be other people there at 3DMJ. It's always, uh, it's always a nice meetup as well to, to go there and meet people that you haven't seen in, in a year. But where can people find out uh, more about you? I know a lot of guests will, or not a lot of listeners will already know where to find you. But for those who maybe don't and want to hear more about you and your prep and everything that you do for, for natural bodybuilding and beyond, where can they go? Absolutely. So, you know, we talked about research related to motivation and exercise psychology, all that good stuff. If you're, if you're a big research nerd and you want to read writings related to published research on this topic, I would encourage you to check out um, Mass, Monthly Applications and Strength Sport. Um, you can find us at, uh, at, we have an Instagram, you know, Mass Research Review. You can look that up. Um, you can go to massresearchreview.com. That's probably the best place. Uh, if you're interested in my personal prep and all that good stuff, you can follow me at Helms3DMJ. That's my Instagram where I kind of keep updates going. And then if you're interested in kind of what we're doing 3DMJ as a whole, go to 3DMuscleJourney.com and we have uh, blog posts, articles, sometimes some of them, many of them written by Amanda on, on topics like these. She's working on one right now that questions the concept of beauty and the pursuit of it, which I think is a really useful thinking piece for people in our space. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so those are probably the, the places I'd recommend people check out. Awesome. Thanks so much, Eric. Thank you, sir.